After the Virus, Podcast Episode 2. Welcome back. I'm thrilled that your interest was piqued by the first episode and that you want to learn more about what happened after the virus. It might seem as though the story, or at least the title, were developed during the present-day COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, I started the story in 2014, based on both the Ebola virus and the Zika virus scares that were in the news at that time. I named the story after the virus almost four years ago. The timing is completely coincidental, although losing my job in March because of the COVID pandemic definitely allowed me the additional time I needed to finish the story. That and the insistence of my youngest daughter, Alita. In this episode, the narration goes from the days leading up to present day and then switches to a daily account of each day's challenges and triumphs. Is the man truly alone in the wilderness? The answer is in this episode. April 16th. End of a long and tiring day of moving supplies. Picking up this account where I left off. After concealing the truck, I took the backpack and the wheelbarrow I had brought, filled them with hastily chosen final supplies, and headed for the cache. To reach my stored supplies, I had to walk about half a mile. The final hundred yards was impossible with the wheelbarrow, so I took the contents of the backpack, then made two more trips for the contents of the wheelbarrow. With the barrow empty, I removed the wheel, which I packed in the backpack, then I buried the rest of the wheelbarrow under a thick patch of manzanita. The cache was not so much a cave as a J-shaped fold in a steep cliff of Tuscan formation rock. To reach it, I had to drop over the steep lip of a bowl, hug the meandering base of the cliff, then turn into a three-foot-wide corridor that appeared to end about six feet ahead. Once at the end, another 36-inch crack on the left opened into a six-foot-wide, 12-foot-long cul-de-sac, mostly covered by an overhanging ledge. From the top of the rock formation above, only a hint of an indentation could be guessed at below and nothing in any direction indicated the presence of an opening. Within this six-foot by 12-foot space, I had stored everything I thought my family might need to survive for an extended period of time. My inventory? Four sleeping bags, four foam pads, four small pillows, one shovel, one pick, one McLeod, one axe, one maul, one bow saw, one hatchet, four camo tarps, four large camo netting, numerous assorted ropes, pots, pans, plates for four, two rifles, a 30-30 and a 270, two handguns, a 38 and a 9mm, four cases of ammunition, two bows, arrows, etc., two slingshots, assorted skinning knives, one bone saw, one machete, numerous pocket knives, a sharpening stone, a case of wooden matches, one flint and steel, a first aid kit, a book of survival medicine, 30 days of canned food for four, and four five-gallon jugs of water, one 100-gallon water tank, 100 feet of black rubber water hose, four backpacks, and four small day packs. 
All of these items were neatly arranged in the cul-de-sac. On top of all was a plastic sheet, a camo tarp, dirt and rocks, leaves, sticks, and limbs. The cache had never been meant to be a dwelling. It's too close to where the old road peters out, and there's no water nearby. It was always intended to be a temporary storage space. Beyond it were tens of thousands of acres of Ishi Wilderness Badlands. In the Tuscan Cliffs, basalt blocks and rockfalls were hundreds of caves, ranging from crawl spaces for emergency hiding places to grand gaping alcoves where whole tribes once sought refuge from heat, rain, and enemies. Over many years of exploring these canyons, I knew of a few that were almost impossible to find. I would spend the coming days shuttling the most critical supplies to one of these living caves, about two miles away. April 19th. Today was my third and final day of moving supplies into my new cave. Just as Ishii had referred to his nearby cave as Grizzly Bear's Hiding Place, I've taken to calling mine the Lion's Lair, for what appears to be the partially consumed deer carcass hidden near the entrance. From the look of the bones, they've been here at least one season, so I'm not too concerned that the cat will be coming back to claim them. The entrance, which is at the base of a 20-foot-high palisade, is hidden by dense ceanothus, manzanita, and poison oak. Once behind this scrim of vegetation, a flat, narrow sandstone bench allows a little sunlight to warm the threshold. A large, angular boulder that looks to have broken off from directly overhead disguises the four-foot-high, 20-foot-deep, 15-foot-wide opening. Inside, the floor is a lumpy, sandy material, actually ancient volcanic ash, that's easily flattened with a McLeod pick and shovel. Once beyond the lip of the opening, the ceiling balloons upward to about seven feet tall. At one side of the cave is a six-foot by eight-foot indentation that angles back into the rock. At the rear of the cave, a ten-foot-long, three-foot-high stone bench is elevated four feet off the main floor, making a cozy sleeping platform with enough padding added. The trips back and forth to the cache have been grueling, taking about four hours plus unloading, arranging, and another few hours back with an empty pack. For now, most of the supplies are stacked adjacent to the entrance, until I have the floor leveled and some of the sharp outcroppings within the cave broken off or somehow softened. I've left a good number of things I won't be needing for a while back at the cache, well-disguised and hopefully bear-proofed. Each trip I took a slightly different route so as not to wear a recognizable trail leading from the cache to the cave. The round, 100-gallon tank was the biggest challenge to move. Too large to carry, it had to be rolled all the way. But it will be needed to store water as I tap into the nearby spring. It's just now getting too dark to write without a light. And as I'm exhausted, I'll take up new tasks tomorrow. April 20th. I was awoken an hour before dawn to the crack of shooting. Three shots, sounding like a handgun. Hard to tell how far away because of the topography, but seemingly a mile or so. This made me extremely anxious. I knew that it was unlikely that I'd be the only person with the idea of waiting out the pandemic in this drainage, but I was hopeful that I'd be mostly alone. 
I busied myself in the pre-dawn dark, cutting shrubs and limbs to better obscure the entrance. Once it was light enough for me to find my way, I headed for where I thought the shots might have come from. I knew that at the bottom of the canyon, on a wide, flat area near the creek, there were a handful of old hunting cabins belonging to longtime families from the area. Every fall, it was a tradition for dads, sons and grandfathers, uncles and cousins, to spend the deer season in the rustic dwellings, drinking, lying, playing poker, and sometimes even hunting. But this wasn't deer season. Clearly, someone had negotiated the rocky and dangerous Jeep trail that came up the canyon to weather the storm of sickness and dying in the city. I halfway expected this and had planned to check on the cabins in the coming days. But now my schedule had been moved up. Rifle shots would mean hunting. Pistol shots during the day could mean anything. But pistol shots at 4 a.m. likely meant trouble. I picked my way carefully through the brush, sticking to the overgrown edges of the swales and small creeks, stopping regularly to listen. The morning bird chorus had just begun, normally a joy, but now just interfering with my hearing. Turkeys gobbled across the canyon. The hillside began to level, which meant I was at the edge of the cabin flat. I strained my ears for any human sounds. Suddenly, I heard the frantic steps of someone running near me. I drew my own pistol and knelt low, preparing for an attack. But instead of me having to shoot, another pistol began firing, perhaps a hundred feet away. I could hear the bullets whiz through the woods around me, but not near me. The fourth shot found its mark as I heard the whoomph of a bullet thumping body, and the footsteps falter, then tumble. Seventy-five feet to my right, I saw the shadow of his fall. Then, with a groan, he was up again and stumbling away. Now, another set of feet was running towards him, the gun barking again. I saw two shadows moving through the trees, then heard another hit, this one loud and hollow, like banging a bucket of water with a bat. The fleeing man dropped from my view as his pursuer continued running towards him. When he arrived at the now-prone body, he very purposefully, aimed his gun at the man and emptied the rest of its bullets into the carcass. Hearing the click of the spent gun, I was at least relieved that I now had the advantage should I be discovered. Without a word or any hesitation, the shooter turned and headed back to the flat. I waited to stand until I heard the slamming of a cabin door. Rising ever so slowly and cautiously, I spent the next five minutes just listening to the sounds of movement from inside the cabin. Then I made my way carefully over to the body. From what I could tell, a twenty-something male lay face down, a patchwork of bloodied divots covering his back, buttocks, and arms, with a pulpy concentration at his upper back. I found a long stick and was preparing to flip him over when I noticed older, dried bloodstains from his ears. I had seen these same tracks the last day I saw my wife. Telltale signs of hemorrhaging. I dropped the stick and quickly and quietly moved away from the body, skirting the edge of the flat to get a better view of the cabin. Gaining a little elevation, I found a vantage point with a clear view of the cabin. 
two other cabins could be seen in the distance. Twenty feet from the door of the cabin laid a second body, perhaps the victim of the 4 a.m. gunshots. This, however, was clearly a woman's body. Her long white nightgown showed large, bloody patches, more red than white. Even from this distance, I could make out clanging and clumping inside the compact cabin. I sat there for perhaps 45 minutes before the cabin door slammed open. The man with jet black hair and a black beard carried a gas can and other materials. I could hear him sobbing as he doused the woman's body with fuel, then threw lit matches at the carcass. After three or four tries, there was a sucking, explosive sound as the body became a fireball. The man was standing too close and must have surrounded himself with gas vapors as he was thrown backwards about 20 feet, his shirt and beard on fire. He immediately rolled over and over and beat his chest and face against the ground to smother the flames. Once he was no longer on fire, he jumped up and ran for the creek. I lost sight of him as he dropped down the bank. The female body flamed for minutes until the fire died out and the blackened corpse smoldered and hissed. I was tempted to change location to get a look at the man in the creek, but chose to sit cautiously and wait. After half an hour, he came back limping and moaning. Halfway back, he started running towards the cabin, stopping at the large black water tank next to it. He frantically turned a nozzle, grabbed a hose, and soaked himself, sighing loudly as the cool water apparently eased the pain of what must have been second and third degree burns all over his chest and face. He ran into the cabin, banged some drawers and doors, and came jogging out with a half gallon of whiskey in one hand and a first aid kit in the other. He set them down near the water tank and doused himself again, then took a bottle of pills from the first aid kit and shook some into his mouth and chased them with three long swallows from the whiskey bottle. He set the whiskey and kit down, pulled a lawn chair next to the water tank, and doused himself again. I could see his body relaxing as his pace slowed, and he moaned less. Rifling through his first aid kit, he grabbed something, fiddled with it, then began coating his face and chest with a white salve, presumably some kind of antiseptic. Completing his doctoring, he doused, then drank more whiskey. Regular dousing, accompanied by swallows of whiskey, was repeated throughout the morning until he eventually slumped, then fell from the chair and lay on his side in the mud. After ten minutes with no movement, I decided that I had seen all I needed to see of this and circled around the flat to get a look at the other cabins. Obtaining a viewpoint close to the structures, I spent about 15 minutes monitoring them before approaching. Numerous ATVs, jeeps, and trailers were parked around them, so the lack of any movement inside had me worried that the occupants were out hunting. I crept stealthily forward, keeping an eye on the hillside above me at the same time. Reaching the first cabin, I found a window to peer into. When my eyes finally adjusted to the dim interior light and I could focus, I momentarily fought back a gag as I recognized the grossly bloated bodies of at least four humans. Forgetting caution, I stumbled backwards towards the remaining cabin. 
reasonably certain of what I would find, I steeled myself for a look. No bodies were visible in the main room, but the presence of large blowflies inside the bedroom window suggested more corpses. I suddenly felt terribly weak and tired. As I went to my hands and knees, I retched. The meager contents of my stomach came up in front of me. I crawled over it and continued to the edge of the thicker vegetation, where I curled into a ball and passed into a deep sleep. When I awoke next, the sun was low on the horizon. The woods were quiet except for the chatter of squirrels and jays. I was dehydrated and painfully hungry, which made sense because I'd been working hard for five days straight and was not eating or drinking much. I crept around the edge of the flat to the creek, where I drank my fill. Feeling much better, I resolved to find some food. Right next to me in the shallow water near shore were cattails, which I plucked out and hungrily gnawed at the onion-like bases. Making my way slowly back to my cave, I came upon many spring wildflowers that I had been too preoccupied to notice in the last few days. I dug up about 20 blue dicks, sometimes called by the pioneers Indian potatoes, ate a few of the starchy corms, and saved the rest. Feeling somewhat revived, I made my way back to the cave and am now recording the day's revelations. Thanks again for the pleasure of your company. Don't forget to order your own copy of the ebook or paperback at Amazon.com.